0: Hi, welcome to QAV. This is episode six thirty-seven, and we've got a special guest on today. But before we get to the special guest, hi, TK. How are you? Hey, good, Cam. Back in Sydney. He?
1: Yeah. Hello, to, hello to everyone. I'm going to be on the Gold Coast when you're hearing yeah. this. I would think having a, having a, a, a nice break. break. So thanks to Steve for coming on and no, filling in for me. I guess
0: we haven't said who the guest oh, is. Okay. Well, I guess they've probably seen it in the title. Before yeah. we get to Steve, I want to uh, do a shout out to. Ed Nixon, who invited me up to present at the Noosa Stock Doctors Association um, the other day. That was a lot of fun. Didn't get to see any beach, didn't have time, had to get back for Kung Fu, but drove for two hours to Noosa. Did a dog and pony show and drove all the way back. But that was was nice to present to the Stock Doctor. Hello to all the Stock Doctor people in Noosa uh, up there. And um, hello to Steve and Kathy, who came onto the webinar last night too, and They've been long term members, but hadn't really met them before. They're from the Gold Coast. So I went through the latest buy list and stuff with them, which was always fun. But one of the things I wanted to just point out one of the things that was reaffirmed to me at the stock doctor thing that I did these people, you know, they've been investing for a long time. Uh, all you stock doctor, obviously, smart people. And, and I sort of did my dog and pony show, explained how QAV works. And then they uh, uh, opened up their portfolio. They have like a group portfolio and they were talking about, you know, things that they could add to it. And after I'd just spoken for an hour about general philosophy is figure out what something's worth and then try and buy it for less. I was just fascinated that when they were analyzing things to add the, to their portfolio, not once did anyone talk about what, it was, what its intrinsic value was and, you know, whether or not they could get it at a discount. Um, and so I, you know, from time to time would pull up my, buy list or checklist and go, yeah, well, I wouldn't buy that. Uh, you know, we wouldn't buy that at the moment because it's prop calf is 53, you have to wait 53 years for it to return the price. And I was thinking, I don't think any of us have got 53 years in us unless the AI catches up really quickly. But yeah, it was really interesting just to see that, uh, um, a lot of investors just don't think about. What is the intrinsic value of a share and can I get it at a discount right now? I think even people that have been investing for a long time, that's just not in their wheelhouse. It just doesn't seem to be how most amateur investors think about investing. What I now think of as sort of the fundamental premise of investing, figure out what it's worth and then buy it if you can get it cheap, just doesn't seem to be on the radar of a lot of investors, which I always find kind of interesting
1: uh yeah i mean there's I agree with you, um and you know we've discussed this before about where do you draw the line for a buy um in terms of how many years you wait for the cash to be returned to you and it's if that's a great answer yeah um it's part of the mix. that's why we don't just use intrinsic value as, our, as the as a number one thing on our checklist. Um, but the way I look at it is the cheaper something is. The more, as Buffett would say, margin of safety you have if something goes wrong. Mm. If if you're paying fifty-three times cash flow for a share, because you think it's going to, it's growing really fast, and it's you know the greatest thing since sliced bread. It's a you know biggest AI chip maker in the world, or it's the biggest cryptocurrency hub in the world, or whatever coin exchange or whatever. Uh, it, it just doesn't take much to knock it off the rails and and you'll never get that 50 times cash flow. Suddenly that becomes a hundred times cash flow mm. um, or whatever. So, you know, the, the cheaper, you, the, the quicker you can get repaid, the less likely you are to be derailed
0: is the way I look at it. Mm. Yeah. All right. Anyway, with that, uh, welcome Chairman Mab from the Australian Shareholders Association back to the podcast. This is his annual proxy vote drive, as I uh, said to him yesterday. <laughs> Give us your proxies. <laughs> Give us your proxies. <laughs>
2: well, I will point out, Kevin, was uh, you contacting me? It, it was, that, but it I'm was. very shamelessly uh, <laughs> happy to promote your
1: proxies today. That, that's it. He's, he's sitting here and his preachers rose with his arms. <laughs> that's right. A, please help. Come in. Come in. Join the church. Exactly. How <laughs> are you,
2: Steve? I'm wonderful. It's a pleasure to be back. Thank you so much for the invitation. And uh, yeah, looking forward to having a bit of a chat and uh, you know, sharing sharing a few insights and ideas that
0: might be helpful for people. And dirt. Lots of dirt. I hope you're bringing lots of got, ASA Got a few dirt.
2: stories. Yeah. Got a few interesting stories to highlight some of the points that might be interesting or relevant for people. So yeah, looking forward to the chat. What's been going on?
1: Is this the... Sorry. Is this the ASA Rear Window? <laughs> Pretty much, QA, I, do, I do read
2: Rear Window every day, and I I, I love the mm. way Joe Aston writes. As I know you're a bit of a fan too, Tony, but uh, yeah, mm. I certainly get some some insights from some of the things Joe writes. That helps with our monitoring and oversight of some of the companies that ASA covers as well. So yeah, effectively, we're uh, maybe a little less controversial controversial version of Rear Window with some of the companies that we monitor.
1: <laughs> A little less litigious.
2: Yes. You? Yes. I don't have probably the same amount of uh, legal support that Joe has, I suspect, <laughs> when he goes after some of these people. But yeah, looking forward to having a chat about that. Uh, so a couple of other little things I, I, I've come across personally that I thought might be worth sharing as well. So I'm not sure if you guys have looked at this or not, but there's a, there's a website called ListCorp, which is an Aussie site, listcorp.com. And effectively, you can you can put in any company ticket code you like. And your email, and they'll start emailing you all the announcements that are made by that company. Just you know, an email in your So I find it really easy to be honest. I don't have to set up the alerts in Stock Doctor and reset them and all that kind of stuff that I used to do. I just put the ticker into my Whistler account now, and all you need to give them is your email, basically. And that way. Each and every announcement that comes out, it could be a red flag or a bad news story or whatever it is. I get pinged in my inbox now automatically without having to go go looking for it. Director trades, all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, if anyone's interested, listcorp.com on findings is pretty helpful hmm. just on top of all those different company announcements. And then there's another website I just came across recently called com, and they have all of the results announcements or briefings by management to the market for free on that site. So again, you can put in the companies that you're interested in or just go there and put the ticker in of a company you're interested in. And you can look at the the earnings call, the, the update from the CEO, the chair, whatever it is, normally within half an hour of it going out. So, so if you are someone that likes to follow what management are saying when the annual report or the half-year reports or whatever come out, that's a pretty good site too. Instead of having to sign up on the company's investor side or whatever and make sure you're there at the right time or whatever, this is a way to just watch it at a time that suits you, whether it's a video or just a, a teleconference, they all go on open briefings. So, so yeah, I've found both of those pretty helpful to follow along with my companies and some of their QAVs might be might be might find that helpful as well for the QAV stocks they're holding. Thanks.
0: I'll check those out. Good. Yeah. It's, so what else uh, the best been... thing is they're free as well, so which I like. Keep your fees low. <laughs> that's good. What else have you been uh, keeping yourself busy with, Steve?
2: Well, we've we've had a lot of media over the last couple of weeks at ASA, particularly around the, the Qantas at Saga that's playing out. So lots of requests for I guess ASA's position and comment on what's been happening that most people have probably read about or heard about over the last couple of weeks. So that's that's been keeping us busy. And at the moment, we're waiting for the remuneration report there to come out, which is, I think, was due this afternoon, but I think I heard they might have delayed it till Monday now. So we're very interested to see what, what changes, if any, the board might have made to the remuneration for this particular year for Mr. Joyce, given the things that have been coming to line around the ACCC investigation that was announced, and obviously their, their Senate appearance a couple of weeks ago. I see the Senate have asked, with Alan Joyce, and you see Vanessa Hudson to front up again next week, I think it is, or the week after, over the Qatar situation. So there's a lot going on here, and lots of mainstream press looking for, for comment, which is unusual. Often this stuff normally kind of finds its way to the financial press that we might read, but this seems to be kind of mainstream news, given how many people, I guess, know and use Qantas. So... So yeah, we're, we're so at the moment we're just waiting to see the report, and then we'll we'll make an assessment from there, like we do every year, on whether we think the remunerations are you know, fair and reasonable in the circumstances, and, and how the boards applied their own rules, if you like, to to the remuneration for Mister Joyce for this year. So yeah, if you if you're interested in that, you'll be able to find all that on the ASA website in a couple of weeks' time, probably once the the report or the voting intentions have been written.
1: Getting a few. So, Those how, so take us through the process there. How do you form a position on Qantas or the REM report? Is it, do you go through a committee? Do you have policies you match it against? The yeah, it's an excellent
2: What's question, TK. Okay. So yes, we we have a formal policy around all of the various things that shareholders get asked to vote on or affect shareholders. And that doesn't change too much from year to year, but it's a, it's a public document. And and we then share that with the board each year of the roughly the ASX 200 companies that that we monitor So what happens is we have a policy committee that's made up of members, the retail shareholders, just like us, that and a the manager. And they get together and just review those guidelines every year, make sure they're still fit for purpose. And if they are, then they go to the companies again to say, this is what we'll be looking for when you put out your annual reports. And then we have a team of about 120 people that are all volunteers, just regular retail shareholders again, but have an interest in good governance and the resolutions and and the voting process and all that kind of thing. So they'll then sit down and go through the annual report once it's published. And from there, normally have a meeting with the boards, typically the chair of the board and the head of the remuneration committee. So the people that are overseeing directors and and the uh, remuneration of the company, they'll have a meeting, they'll go through what's in the annual report and what the resolutions are that are going to be put to shareholders to vote on that year. And if there's anything there that's unclear, obviously, we're trying to clarify that with the company before we put a voting intention together, or if it's something that we're really unhappy about, if you like, we talk through that with the company and A, let them know what we're not happy about, and B, give them a chance to, to explain why they think we might be missing something. Um, and then from there, the monitor will go away and put the voting intentions together. Um, normally comes out a couple of weeks before the AGM way people can have a look at it and uh, see how we suggest you should vote um, and be the reasons why. Um, and we'll share that with the company as well. And that same monitor there will normally go to the AGM. They'll vote anyone that's allocated their votes to SA. They'll, they'll vote those votes at the meeting. And they'll also ask questions of the, the chair, the CEO, whoever, whoever he is that's relevant at the AGM so that they publicly get a chance to respond to anything that we think is interesting, controversial, worthy of a public comment, if you like. So so yeah, that's all volunteer work. No, it's paid for any of that, but really we're trying to do it on behalf of small shareholders that may not have the time or the interest or the inclination to to go to an AGM themselves or to vote themselves. So that's a quick overview, I guess, of how the how the process works.
1: Do you think shareholders have voted with their feet already on Qantas? Well,
2: yeah, I know that Kevin and I were talking about the other day. That's obviously something you can do, right? If you're not happy with how the company's being managed or how their remuneration works, of course you can sell your shares, right? That's always an option. But sometimes you get people that still believe in the long-term future of the company, for example, and they don't want to sell their shares in one given year over one particular remuneration issue. They just want to be heard. So that's where you do get some shareholders that say, hey, I want to go to the AGM or I want to vote against the REM report because I want it to change. I still believe in the future of the company. I'm not going to sell the shares necessarily, but I'd like the board or the management team to, to change this. It's different for everyone, right? Everyone's got different approaches to whether it's a red flag sell and they're out or whether it's this is an issue that I'd like to see change, but I'd still want to be a shareholder. So it just depends where you sit on that. There's certainly times where I've sold my shoes based on something I've discovered in a company, but there's other times where I still like the company and we can probably talk about an example in a second where I don't, you know, I don't want to exit shareholding, but I do want to flag something at the upcoming AGM that I'd like to see how they respond to. So
1: there's the ASA... Given that, does the ASA take positions and move motions themselves outside of voting on the agenda? So for example, if you took a position that if if a company faced litigation or potential legal action from the regulator after the CEO exits, that there should be a bonus clawback. And so move a motion to say all company contracts going forward should have a clawback provision.
2: Yeah, no, we don't we don't move motions of our own we're not that activist but what we would say to the company in that circumstance is shareholders would expect you to build this in going forward or it's something we'd like to see going forward and we'll be looking for this again next year and most of the time they're probably getting similarish feedback from the big proxy advisors because there's there's another arm to all of this like the the asa represents small shareholders like all of us but there's these big groups called proxy advisors that that are a pay for service type type groups basically that represent big institutions. So they'll typically represent the super funds, for example, or big fund managers, and they'll put together voting intentions that those organisations pay them for. And most of the time, we're pretty aligned with the proxy advisors on lots of issues. So there's something that we're really unhappy about with remuneration, for example. A lot of the time, the proxy advisors are on the same page, and the company will get that feedback from these different organisations that are overseeing how they're managing these issues and and good or engaged boards typically then will try and improve or change those things the year after. So there is some real change that comes from these things over time if you've got a board or a management team that are truly interested in what their shareholders think. There's a handful of companies that don't care, that are just like, we're doing it our way, we don't care what you say, like it or lump it. But I'd say that's probably less than 5% of the ASX 200. The vast majority of those companies these days are genuinely willing to engage and listen to reasonable feedback from those shareholding groups and often do tweak things or change things here, particularly around remuneration. And I think we might've talked about this last time, but there is a pretty hard hitting clause, if you like, around remuneration reports where if 25% of the shareholders or more vote against the remuneration report in any given year, that's what they call a first strike. So effectively it's it's not binding, the company can still do what they want on remuneration, but they'll record a first strike if 25% or more of shareholders vote against the rent plan that year. And then if it happens the second year, so two consecutive years, if they didn't change things or didn't improve things or did something even worse the year after, whatever it might be, and they get a second strike, then you have the potential to spill part of the board. So effectively vote part of the board off. And most boards don't want that, obviously. Most directors or cheers don't want to be spilled. They don't want to lose their jobs. So when they do get a first strike, that's normally we can see some pretty significant changes to the way they're remunerating or incentivizing their their management team the following year, because self-interest kicks in and a lot of them want to, want to keep their job the year after so. So there is um, again some meaningful change that comes from those things when enough shareholders are unhappy and vote against something that they don't think was was fair or
1: reasonable. Do you, does the ASA meet with the other proxy advisors and coordinate that? In no, not cases?
2: not formally. I mean, we bump into them and we chat to them from time to time, but there's no formal you know time. We don't discuss companies in advance or get on the same page formally. It's more just we have a professional. Working, you know, rapport with each other, but there's no close ties or colluding or comparing of voting intentions before meetings or anything like that. So, yeah, we, we we're certainly not hostile or in opposition with each other, but there's no yeah, no tie-up or close working relationship like that on an individual company.
1: You find the ASA normally lines up with the other proxy advisors or or are there retail differences to their kind of institutions? Yeah, there's
2: process? there's a few differences. So probably one of the biggest ones is actually around capital raisings. So lots of I guess lots of listeners have probably had a company over their journey that's raised capital at some point, shareholders for some more money. And the bigger institutions get a different type of capital raising normally to what the retail shareholders typically get. So there's a few different ways I guess companies and raise capital. One of them is called placements, and that's typically what does go to the to the big institutions, the super funds, the fund managers, whatever it is, and that's done normally without retail shareholders even knowing about it at the time. It happens pretty quickly. if they, they ring around in 24 hours, drum up enough support from enough people and, and do a placement. And then if there are a company that cares about their retail shareholders, they'll hopefully then do one of a couple of things after that for their smaller shareholders. So the first one is what's called a share purchase plan or an SPP. And that's typically where you get the chance to apply for up to $30,000 worth of additional shares at a discount, some kind of discount normally to what the current share price was when the announcement came out. And it's a few weeks typically before you have to have your money in and those new shares will be issued. So that's good in a way because you get a chance to participate. The, the flip side to that is my, my personal approach to it has been I don't really apply for more shares until a day or two before the closing date because sometimes the share price can drop more than the discount price and you're actually buying shares for more than you can just buy them on market anyway. Mm-hmm. So my approach has been, yeah, wait for wait until a day or two before till you have to be paying money if you did want some more shares in the company. The downside of SPPs is if you don't participate, you are getting diluted. So if you don't buy some more shares, your slice of the pizza, so to speak, is going to shrink a little bit. Yep. But obviously it's still up to you whether you want to want to go and buy a bit more of the, the company at that point in time. Probably the the best way and the fairest way and the way that we encourage companies to raise capital is what's called a, a, a patrio or a renounceable offer. And that's where, whether you participate or not, you get compensated, right? So basically if you participate, you buy some more shares at the discount, you, you're not deluded. Even if you don't participate, the company compensates you. For, for the deletion that would have otherwise taken place. It's not the most common way companies raise capital, but there are more companies starting to do it because they recognize that it is fairer to, to treat all the shareholders for equal, uh, sorry, equally, whether they're participating not, Sydney Airport was a good example. They did a patch of their raising before they got taken off the, the boards. So there's more companies starting to do it and that's something we push for. We say where the proxy advisors wouldn't be doing that, they're more than happy with the placement we really want yeah, to pack right. share raising for, for smaller shareholders so that everyone is treated fairly and equally, if you like. Now, it's yeah. a bit more hassle for the company. That's why they don't all do it. It's a bit more costly for the company mm-hmm. too. So there's some downsides mm. to the company to do it. But uh, anyway, in answer to the question, that's what we'd recommend that might be a bit different to the proxy advisors.
1: Yeah, there's a downside to the company in the extra cost. I get that. But there's also an upside, which doesn't seem to get mined, is that they could be raising a large amount of capital from retail shareholders, but they tend to cap it out at a very small amount. So, for example, if the insto raise was 100 million, chances are the retail raise is capped at 10 or 20 million. That's whereas right. Whereas they, they could potentially have raised 50 or 60 or 100 million from the retail shareholders as well. I just exactly.
2: And out. there's some really good recent examples of that, like both good and good and bad. I mean, in in 2019 when when COVID hit, there were there were three companies I remember that did placement-only raising at the time. When they had a lot of retail shareholders, it I think it was Megaport, Temple, and Webster and Zipco. And I know none of them mm-hmm. are QAV stocks, but they were pretty popular retail stocks at the time. They all did placements mm-hmm. only, so they didn't give their shareholders, a, their retail shareholders, small shareholders, a chance to participate. After Pay did a placement in 2020. And they scaled it back, I think about 86% or something like that. So even if you applied for your 30 grand, you only got 14% of it basically. So, uh, so the retail shareholders even that wanted to participate, didn't get their fair crack at it. So there's some bad examples there of companies that are, so I agree with you to I'm not sure why, unless they just really don't think they need any more money, they've got so much in the placement that they don't think they need any more, but then is it isn't the fairest way to do it? That's for sure.
1: Is there... A- do you, does the ASA have a position on how much, what, what the cap should be on a company in terms of how much it can raise in those placements? Because I think from memory, the law is it's, it's capped out at either 10 or 20% yeah. unless it goes to the vote of shareholders to raise more. I think it's 15
2: in any one year period unless you put 15, it to okay. a vote. Yeah, so I think it's typically 15% annually. And we're, we're in sync with that as a general rule. And obviously, if you feel like you need to raise more than that, then you have to put it to shareholders. I mean, it doesn't happen very often, but occasionally you might see a company that's raising capital and then wants to do another acquisition that looks like it's a really good acquisition for the business and it might be accretive and it's going to add value. I mean, that'd be an example where we typically support them. And so based on everything we know... We're happy to, for you to raise capital again because it's going to grow under value in the earnings of the company on the other side of it. But it's pretty rare. You don't see it too often, particularly not in the ASX 200, the bigger companies that we cover there. Mm. They're normally a bit more capitalized yeah. than that. So, so, yeah, we typically support the 15% rule. And yeah, so there's a lot of things around capital raising, but you know, I think ideally you just want to make sure that the company is treating you as fairly as possible. SPP is in the middle. The Paccio or the renounceable type raising is the best. A placement's really bad. And I've had a few companies that have done placements only over the years and I've sold them for mm. the reason I've thought. If you don't share enough about me as a retail shareholder to even give me a chance to participate, I'm I'm not really aligned with you. So that's been my personal approach to the couple of companies I've had that have done placements only. Now, I could be wrong, they might have gone on to the big winners, but uh, I just felt like if management didn't, didn't value me, I I'm probably back in the wrong horse. So that's been my approach. And
1: yeah, look, it's an interesting situation. I've spoken to, well, at least one small cap chairman who's just, I guess because they spend their whole day talking to instos, investment bankers, the large end of town, so to speak. I presented them with research and said, look, here's the report that came out through this newsletter, which they weren't aware of because it was going to retail investors. And here's how your share price moved. And they go, oh, oh, I'm going, yeah, retail. The instos tend to to move slowly on your register, but look, the shareholders are turning over the most, well, the, the shareholders that are turning over the most in retail, and that's what's moving your yeah. price, but you're not communicating with them, you're not, in sync with who researches and sends things to them, and you're not in sync with them when it comes to thing. Yeah,
2: exactly. And I, I, I get it. If you're a small company and you're really busy and you've got five or 10 or 15 institutional shareholders, it's pretty easy probably to have conversations Ooh. with them. And then you think, well, I've got a few thousand retail shareholders. It's too difficult to go and talk to them all. Well, I won't worry about it. All right? I, I, I kind of get the human nature side of that perhaps, but you're right. There is more, normally more action or more, more trading amongst retail shareholders in those smaller caps. So yeah, it, it seems a bit self defeating to me to not be considering them or trying to treat yeah. them fairly if you if you want to keep them on your register or keep them invested with you. So yeah. Anyway.
1: What's your feeling on underwriting for those placements too? That's often the hidden fee that that goes. Yeah, on. well, it's a well, personal view. It seems
2: to me it's a pretty good business, but. <laughs> For some of those banks that uh, for twenty four hours get to take a tiny amount of risk and then get a few million dollars for for raising capital for, for for a company. So it's not something we we have a formal position on per se, but I do note that it seems like it's a fairly risk low risk and, and financially successful trade for the Macquaries of the world and other kind of breakers mm. and banks that in twenty four hours can ring around and whip up a bunch of capital and to some 7 figure sums. So maybe we're in the wrong business, TK. We should be should be yeah. brokers or merchant bankers <laughs> raising capital for TK.
1: <laughs> well, speaking of the wrong business, I guess I'm leading up to a question for the ASA. Have you ever thought about putting together a, an index fund, a listed investment company or an ETF for the ASA investors to list in and then to operate under the, the good governance policies of the ASA? And, and I guess you, you can say you're, you're one of the companies then that, that will... Do things by the book and not, not cut corners. Or yeah, we, we actually
2: have, plan. I mean, the problem we've got at the moment is we don't have an AFSL, so we can't really give yeah. advice right. on individual companies. And we also couldn't create our own fund per se. It is mean, something we've discussed. And look, I think it's a pretty long, complicated process mm. to, to get an AFSL, Um So we haven't said never, we've just kind of parked it for the time being and said, because we don't have an AFSL, that's probably not something we can pursue. We definitely have members get together at member groups and they have a dummy portfolio on their own in their member group, for example, and the collective wisdom of the the local discussion groups kind of putting together a portfolio that they update every month. But it's just a paper example. It's not a formal yeah. fund, obviously. So yeah, the short answer to the question is yes, we've thought about it, but without the AFSL at the moment, it's a bit tough to do that, or not possible to do that, unfortunately. Yeah.
1: So if someone's listening out there who's got an AFSL and would like to partner with the ASA, they should get That's them right. Yes. You. We'd love to chat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess the second sort of broad ranging question is what 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 does the ASC ASA see for the future of AGMs, both in terms of Online versus hybrid versus in-person, the, the the makeup, the frequency, the way shareholders are treated. What yeah, do you, do look,
2: we're a huge that? supporter of the hybrid AGM. So what that basically means is that they're having an in-person AGM for people that do want to attend in person, but they're also having a live online version that allows you to vote and ask questions in real time as well. And I've really, I'm, like you, I'm in a fortunate position that I'm a full-time investor these days and, and I am trying to get to all of the AGMs of the companies that I own each year. Um, but there's some times where you just can't, right? It's a location that you're not going to be able to yeah. get to or there's two on the one day in different it's, places or whatever it is. It's yeah, exactly. Like, exactly. So there's times yeah. where you just physically <laughs> can't be there, of course. And Australia is a big mm. country, right? Five or six big cities that the AGMs typically held in, you can't be in all those places. So that's where the online AGM I think has become more and more valuable for people. If you are interested Mm. and you do want to participate and you do want to see how management and the chair and the other shareholders are are interacting, being able to watch a live webcast and open questions in real time is terrific. I mean, a lot of companies will, historically would take a recording and they'd put the recording on their website afterwards. You could only watch that after the fact, and it wouldn't help you with your, your voting at the time, or it wouldn't allow you to actually ask the question during the meeting. So so we prefer the true hybrid um, meeting. We're not a fan of online only meetings because there still is plenty of people that do want to go in person. It's their one chance a year where they get to go and talk to the management, talk to the board, have an opportunity, see what they're like, see the whites of their eyes. I mean, I know there's different views on how valuable that is, but there's certainly still plenty of retail shareholders that tell us that they value that and that they won't continue to do that. So our approach is is hybrid meetings, and we did have some companies last year that actually put forward resolutions to change their constitutions to have online only AGMs, so that they didn't have to hold the physical AGM anymore. Ooh. And fortunately, the vast majority of those companies withdrew the resolutions pretty quickly because they got some pretty strong feedback wow. from both big and small shareholders, but that is not mm-hmm. something that they wanted to see. They'd need a 75% in favour vote to change something like that, and they were not going to get it. So most of the companies pulled those resolutions. There were some really small caps that got it through because no one was probably looking, but it has to be changed in your constitution to allow that. So like during COVID, we got it. It's difficult to get together face-to-face. You need an online only meeting. We got all of that. I mean, there's times where that might might be the case again in the future. But it's a general rule, yeah, we like the chance to be able to either go in person or participate online if you're if you're interested
1: you have a do you have a policy or a, a template, I guess for how to conduct a hybrid meeting because uh, yeah, you hear complaints from time to time of people who say, "I didn't get my question answered, or they edited my question, they rewrote it, or they limited it to a certain number of questions ten or twenty, and they I just didn't get a chance to yeah, yes. Yeah, so- or do you get so there's us?
2: a couple of different platform providers that, that allow or facilitate hybrid meetings. There's one called Lumi that we use. So like ASA has been running a hybrid AGM for our, our own organization for many years, and we use the Lumi platform. It's really good. So when companies are asking about it, we've been recommending Lumi. We don't get anything out of that. There's nothing financial out of it. But but if companies aren't sure how to do it, there's a couple of different platform providers that have the technology to allow you to do it. As far as the questions go, unfortunately, it comes down to uh, the character or the integrity or the process of the chair. If the chairs really dependent and transparent around the questions, they'll allow the company secretary or whoever it is that's taking the questions coming in to ask them and then they'll allow them to to respond. Unfortunately, there are times where you get boards or chairs that will edit the questions or won't ask the questions. Sometimes they'll aggregate the questions because they might get 10 questions that are really similar and they're not going to ask the same question 10 times. So we can't, we're right. fine with that, yeah. obviously. But where they're deliberately not asking legitimate questions, particularly when they've got enough time to, um, we will definitely write to the company afterwards and voice our, um, our displeasure with that. I think when you get to really big companies like the CBAs and the Telstra's of the world, they have such massive AGMs and so many shareholders in attendance. Practically, they do have to try and manage the questions a little bit, otherwise the meeting would go for days. So depending <laughs> on the size of the company, there's some practical constraints around how many questions they can read out. But I'd, I own I quite a few kind of smaller or mid-caps and I find most of those companies, they, they never run out of time to ask the questions. Often ASA or a couple of retail shareholders will be the only people even asking questions at those smaller company AGMs. So you typically don't find they're editing things out, which is, which is good. But yeah, I do get the bigger companies just have a practical problem sometimes with just how many questions they're trying to get through in the few hours they've got allocated
1: to the AGM. Ooh. Well, speaking of AGMs, maybe you can give us a few war stories. What What was the strangest AGM? Yeah, you've been absolutely. I think that there's a company um, called EML, which has been in the news a little bit. It was an
2: ASX 200 company back in 2020, and it was Brisbane-based. So I volunteered to to, to monitor EML that year. It was back when I was using Motley Fool Service, a little before I, you know, stumbled across the brilliance of QAV, obviously, so, so I had some EML shares and I thought, oh, well, I wanted to this company because I've got a shareholding and we weren't covering it, wasn't the 200 now and went through all of that process I talked about earlier and I discovered that there were a few things happening that that were, weren't great. In particular, the the board had decided that year to use what we call discretion to pay out management's bonuses or management's variable pay that year, their incentives, without them having actually hit the numbers that the board had set at the start of the year. And it was during COVID and, and the board explained to us that, oh, look, it's not fair. That wasn't the management's fault that COVID happened. They've worked really hard and they've made this fantastic acquisition in Europe that they renegotiated the price down on because of the impacts of COVID to the business. So we're going to pay them out, out their bonuses in full basically, or nearly in full because they, they deserved it and it wasn't their fault that COVID happened. And we, we explained, well, look, we, we understand that, but it also wasn't shareholders' fault that COVID happened and shareholders are down <laughs> yes. considerably right now. I think the share price was down Ooh. 30 or 40% at that point in time for the year. So effectively what's happening there is the board saying, We've got a variable remuneration plan, but if we don't hit it, we'll kind of just override it and pay the bonuses anyway, regardless of them not meeting the hurdles that we stand out at the start of the year. So obviously we decided to vote against the remuneration that year. And so the AGM comes along and the couple of interesting things happened in the AGM, which if you weren't monitoring the company or you didn't have someone from ASA monitoring the company, you probably wouldn't have heard about, obviously, unless you'd participated in the AGM personally. So the CEO gets up to give his address. And like most CEO addresses, you know, hear them say lots of lovely things about the year and the team and how optimistic they are about the future, et cetera. And he said that stuff, but then he said, now I also want to, sorry, I missed a part of the day before they had an investor. Briefing day that went for about six hours. It was a big online investor conference where they were talking about all their plans for the future and all their products. They do like gift cards and incentive cards and all that kind of thing. That's what the business was all about. And I watched that being a shareholder before the AGM and I came away scratching my head thinking, I'm not kind of getting a few things here. There's some things they're talking about, these new products that I just don't really understand. Anyway, the next day comes on the CEO. So then he finishes his address by saying, Now, I also want to say, to people out there that are having trouble understanding what we do or some of our products, I'd say to you, you don't need to understand. You just need to trust management. And if you trust <laughs> management, you should own EML shares. So that was the first kind of yellow flag to me. I'm like, that's an interesting comment. Like he's obviously got some feedback Ooh. from someone else too that, that it was difficult to understand some of what they were proposing. And instead of explaining it, he's just said, trust us. So then the chair comes in and, and like I mentioned, one of the jobs of the ASA monitors is to ask questions at the at the AGM to kind of get a formal answer. So I pushed back on the remuneration, obviously, asked the question around why they'd uh, chosen to use discretion. And the head of the REM committee gave, gave the same kind of answer I shared earlier, but then the chair comes in over the top and says, and by the way, we're in a we're in a global race for talent, and not only did we use discretion this year, but we'll use discretion again in the future if we have to. So he was basically saying that we don't really have a variable remuneration plan. We're just going to use our discretion as a board to pay out yeah. pay out the bonus. Now, this is an ASX 200 company. So we're not talking about a little specky miner here that yep. is wild. We're, we're talking about one of the top 200 companies in Australia at the time by market cap. So what happens from there? Well, I wrote up my AGM report for all of our members to read. It called out those yellow flags. And obviously, they already knew that we were voting against the rim. A couple of months later, the Irish Central Bank announces an investigation into the acquisition that they've made for potential money laundering. So the share price mm. craters because this fantastic acquisition that they'd allegedly made has a whole bunch of regulatory problems. It was a European-based business that they'd acquired. And since then, there's just been one after the other and uh, controversial or value-destroying announcements or progressions in the business. The CEO that I mentioned, he sold $16 million worth of shares just before that announcement was made through some creative loophole. He subsequently resigned about a year later when the the news kept getting worse. The chair was then voted off the board the year after, which is very unusual, (laughs) right? It's pretty rare that you actually get enough shareholders so displeased that they'll vote more than 50% against a director. He wasn't willing to stand down, so the, the shareholders actually voted him off the board They've taken hundreds of millions of dollars in impairments, and the share price has gone from $5 to, I think it was less than 50 cents last time I looked. But that AGM was the first, or that annual report and that AGM was the first real indication you got, or certainly that I'd seen, of some things going on that maybe weren't aligned or your best interests as a shareholder. So I think that's a good example of where particularly newly monitored companies, if you'd read that report or you'd kind of heard some of that commentary, it might've given you pause for thought about whether this was really a business that you wanted to stay invested in, for example. I, I obviously sold my shares in the company well before all right. that happened based yeah. on the way that the board and management were approaching it. Now, there's another interesting story I thought I'd share with you too from this year, Nick Scali, which I think is a, is a QAV company and it and is, I, full yeah. disclosure, i quite a few Nick Scarly shares and really like the business. Um, but as I read through their annual report a couple of weeks ago, I picked up something pretty interesting that I am going to go to the AGM and, and ask about. So they appointed a new director by the name of Kathy Parsons this year, earlier this year. And she's a former accountant at and Young. Uh, so she looks very qualified from a financial point of view. She's got lots of great audit and, and risk and financial skills, you'd assume. So there was no, obviously no concerns about that. But then when I looked at her bio, they they basically declared that she also used to be the the signing partner for the Nick Scully audit. And she's been the signing mm. partner for six years from Anston Young, so for Nick Scully, up until 2018. So... It's now a five-year period, I suppose, between when she was yep. the signing partner of the audit to when she's appointed to the board. And checking you with the the chartered accountants, they say that they do like to see a five-year break. That's their kind of mm-hmm. penciled in rule around when audit, audit partners need to have some clear air before they consider a board position at the same company. So kind of checks that box, I suppose, but they continue to use Instant Young as their auditor. So... When I looked back there, I think it looks to me like it's at least a decade that Nick Staley have been using Ernst Young as the, as the auditor. And the fact that they've now appointed the former signing partner to the board, and she's probably the most likely person to become the chair of the audit risk committee going forward, you'd think as well, when that transition happens. It looks to me like there's a bit of a potential conflict here, right? And I, I would assume she's probably got friends or, or colleagues that, Anson Young still, that she may be working with, she may not be, on mixed Scali's audits going forward if they continue to use Anson Young. So that's an example where I'm going to go to the AGM and I'm going to ask them the question around when when was the last time you tended the audit? When when was the last time you considered changing auditors giving this given this material um, connection? And also, why is there only one key audit matter on your um, audit, which is around inventory? Now, retailers typically... I find have two or three things that are normally on the, the list of key audit matters. The other one is- Valuation Exactly, of leases, it's the leases property, and it's also yeah. goodwill for any acquisitions that they've yeah. made. And Nick Scully mm-hmm. has made an acquisition recently. They acquired Plush a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. So I'm not suggesting for a second that there's anything um, fraudulent going on here, but I do think it's an example of where as a shareholder, if you're looking at these kind of things, you know, it, it's your opportunity to at least ask Anthony Scarling this year, what's his view on this? And are they considering changing auditors and doesn't see any conflict there continuing to use the same auditor A for so that long and B with a board member that's so connected to them now? I'm just interested in what he's, what he's going to say there.
1: I'm pretty sure I could probably write the answer <laughs> for
2: him. To, to yeah, but, but I think <clears throat> putting it on the record, and there may not be anyone there, Ask that question, I I assume they'll have a discussion around it afterwards. It's nothing else. I hope at board level, they'll then go, someone's flagged this and we had to answer it publicly. Is this something we're worried about? Is this something? Now, they may decide not to change, but I hope, my my intention, I guess, out of asking that question is, I hope that at board level, I'll at least consider it and discuss it. And it'll be on the other directors' radars as well, that we've got a pretty close connection here. and We haven't changed auditors for a long time. I did notice that she's on another listed company as well, Macmillan Shakespeare, which I think has been a, oh, yeah. a QAV stop at different times. And interestingly, she is the chair of the Audit and Risk Committee there, and she just appointed it at as the new auditor. Mm. So, again, not suggesting there's anything necessarily wrong with that, just that there, there looks to be still some pretty close ties or friendships, it would seem to me for so that change to have been made relatively quickly after she joined the Macmillan board. So, so I don't know that personally, I'm not suggesting that there is anything wrong. I just, that's an example of yeah. why you would want to look at these kind of things. And I know audits yeah. and qualified audits are a big deal for you, TK, and it's something I've learned a lot from listening yeah. to you. So I do take notice of these audit issues now and always look for, is there anything here that might be a worry?
1: Yeah. And I think, I mean, it might be worthwhile for the ASA to, if they haven't already, have to have a good think about policies in this area. We' Spoken before on our show about changing auditors, where miraculously, some companies that have had a qualified audit suddenly lose the, the qualification on the audit, and the auditors have changed yes. the following yes. year. So, <laughs> surprise, surprise. You, you've highlighted the fact that it could be seen as a conflict of interest that the ex auditor, even with a break in between, goes on the board. I'm going to go one step further and be careful and, and not say this is the case with Nick Scali or and, and I can't think of a case in particular. But it's also possible that someone with deep knowledge of the company is then going to oversee the future audits of that company and uh, be aware of where the risks are and be sensitive to how they're reported, which is not necessarily acting completely independently. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Not saying it's the case for Nick Scarley, but that's that's case, right. And I mean, don't get me wrong,
2: I think it's wonderful that you've got someone that's been an audit
1: signing partner on your board, right? Like, clearly, those Ooh.
2: kind of skills would be really helpful to oversee future audits at the company. The question is, should you continue to use Ernst Young for me, or should you be switching your auditors now after a long time with that firm in case they're missing something, or you were missing something when you were the signing partner that a new auditor or a new CA might pick up? So, so that, yeah. and that's really why we do audits, isn't it? We're looking an independent organization to that has expertise to come in and look at the company accounts and make sure that something isn't getting messed up or it doesn't have to be fraudulent of course it yes. could just be that you're missing something no. or you're not considering something that it should be so
1: refreshing yeah demise. exactly yeah and it's pretty typical given but also all the true, I mean, things
2: could, going on at the moment, is what it is so it's probably a, a good time to ask that question
1: yeah and i remember working in uh, uh, big companies the The first question an internal auditor and sometimes an external auditor would ask is who's the person who's been here the longest and when did they last take holidays because that's that's the red flag for them if someone's in the same role for a long time and they're not taking holidays in other words somebody else isn't coming in to relieve them it's that's that the potential there is yeah right that's a great scam going yeah and you, you could Draw a long bow and say that could be the case if you've had a, um, a lengthy relationship with the same auditor. Exactly. What's wrong with a fresh yeah, set of That's files? right. Yeah.
2: Excellent point.
0: Steve. Yes. Before we move on from that, didn't we appoint you as the person to push? The ASX to do something about appendix 4Ds and making sure companies were issuing them, you know, uh, externally to their annual report. How's how's that campaign going? We've raised it with the ASX and we got a polite, it's something we'll look at, but it's not a priority for us at the
2: moment. And this is obviously in the midst of them really struggling with their chess transition. <laughs> and it they mildly. have promised us <laughs> yeah. they have promised us that there'll be a lot of things that will change. When they finally do figure out this chess transition, like thing, for example, like being able to allocate your proxies in a much easier right. way. So we haven't dropped it. We haven't forgotten it. We got the hey, we're too busy to focus on this at the moment, basically. Um, but we will absolutely be re raising it again once they finalise their technology solution. Because I did think it was an excellent idea to just make it more prominent and a separate, a separate call out. And on that, the, the talking about how you allocate proxies, I suppose. One of the downsides to all of this is it's pretty clunky at the moment. If you, you know, don't vote yourself and you'd like the ASA to represent you, you basically have to do it in a couple of manual ways. There's not a really easy, automatic way to, to do it. So probably the, the most common way is you'll get your notice of meeting from the company that you own where the AGM is coming up and it'll say, hey, the meeting's coming up on this day and here's your chance to vote. And that either comes in the mail, if that's how you've elected to receive it, or a lot of the time now, you might have it coming in electronically to your email. And you can just click on the link there, if it's the email, for example, or on the paper form and just write Australian Shareholders Association. So that's probably the easiest way or the fastest way that most people do it. There is another way, if you don't want to do it individually for every company every year, where you can actually contact the the registry. So Link or Boardroom or Computer Share or whoever the registry is. You can contact them and ask for a standing proxy form and they'll send you a form and you can write in all the companies with that registry that you want to allocate the ASA as a standing proxy. And that means basically every year from then on that you still hold those shares. They'll they'll recognize your your proxy. You can change that at any time, obviously. You can change a writing proxy at any time too. If you go to the AGN, you can still vote. You don't have to leave your proxies with anyone. So it's always changeable. If you do sell the shares, obviously, and then re-buy them, you have to re-register it, unfortunately, which is a bit of a pain. So these are all very clunky things with the way that the purchase system works that we're hoping in, in mm. the future it'll be much easier where you can just check a box or something like that and it'll be a, a standing proxy on your hidden forever or you, you know, your shareholder number forever. That might make it a bit easier for people to allocate their proxy to ASA or anyone else that they wanted to. So, so anyway, that's probably the best way to do it if you're not someone that's interested in voting. You can always read the voting intentions on our website too. So if you actually do want to know how NSA is going to vote or what our opinion is with the company and their, their proposals for the year, you don't have to be a member. You can just go to the Australian Shareholders website and uh, go to Companies We Monitor, put in the ticket code, and it'll it'll show you the the report. As I said, it normally is on there about two weeks before the AGM. So if the AGM is coming up in November, it won't be there yet. The Monitor probably won't have had the meeting with the company and figured it all out yet. But typically about two weeks before the meeting, those, those voting intentions will go up and that's pretty easy for anyone to have a look at and um, see what what we think about how they're managing remuneration, director elections, anything else they're putting to shareholders for the year.
1: Yeah, good. So we can allocate our votes to you or we can vote along with you.
2: Correct. You've got yeah. Whichever way you want to do it. Yeah. And if, if you do want to figure it out yourself, that's totally fine as well. We just advocate that try and have your voice heard, whether you're figuring mm-hmm. it out yourself or you're allocating it to someone else. If you don't vote, the chair just votes on your behalf, basically. And typically, the chair is going to vote based on what they want to happen, not necessarily what shareholders might want to happen. So if you don't vote, just understand that the chair will be voting your votes for you effectively.
1: I want to just step back a bit to what you said before about EML payments, and it raised raised the thought in my mind I just wanted to share with our listeners, and it's to do with Australian companies historically, in my opinion, being seen as a seller of last resort or the buyer of last resort for particularly UK and European companies. EML, obviously, you've spoken about. So they bought an Irish, I think it was an Irish company. Yeah. And then uncovered problems. There are other examples like that. Slater and Gordon bought a company, which the problems became apparent soon after they bought it. And they they, uh, had a huge write down. Uh, I think is the company going through it at the moment, they bought into, took over some funds, I think in the UK, which have had regulatory issues and they paid the price. Going back a long time, NAB bought what's now Virgin UK, so Clydesdale Bank had problems. It's almost like if someone's in the UK, only a company in there, they can see dark clouds on the horizon. They look around to sell it. Everyone local goes not touching it, <laughs> can't find someone in Australia to buy it, so... It's almost a red flag, I think, if, a, if one of the stocks you own suddenly comes up with this great acquisition idea. So you're saying our
2: CEOs are not very good capital allocators, TK? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: well, it's, it's a difficulty. I mean, I've, I've picked that up based on my history of watching it. There was a book written about the fund that Link got uh, mixed up with recently, mm-hmm. but I dare say most you know, CEOs are very operational, don't have times to read books on subjects in the UK. Even yeah. though they're buying the company. So yeah. But it's certainly a well-worn path that when Australian companies go to the UK, they generally are buying problems.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean it's like Buffett says he thinks the CEO's most important job is to be a capital allocator, but a lot of the time it hasn't been their skill set or what they've done, you know, prior to being in the CEO role. So Correct. I think there's another couple of recent examples too. I know Reese, the the plumbing firm mm-hmm. family, pretty big insider ownership family-run mm. type business. I know they made an acquisition in the US and it, it it isn't going as well as they'd hoped at this point. So we'll see how that one plays out. I think there's an example of the Bunnings expansion into the UK isn't mm-hmm. there that didn't go as well. So there's, there's lots of war stories, I think, isn't there, of Aussie companies that have either tried to expand internationally or made acquisitions internationally that that haven't gone well i think that there seems to be more bad news stories doesn't there than good news right. ones so so yeah i know back to nick Scarley for a second I, I did listen to nick's or oh, sorry anthony's uh, last earnings call which i thought was a master class in how to deal with analysts if anyone wants to you can listen to, i know briefing that i mentioned earlier but there were four or five different analysts on the call that asked him some questions around the business and they were Really cheap, inch deep questions. Very, very minimal research, I think, that the analysts had done before they jumped on the call with him. And I thought he did a great job kind of swatting them away and just giving them some pretty blunt, common sense answers, which was which was good. But he did mention he's been in the UK. <laughs> that they're they're looking, looking at the UK. Right. So that'll be interesting to watch. As I said, I'm, I'm a shareholder. I'm a big fan of Anthony Scali personally and mm. the way he's been running the business. And they have done an excellent job with the pl- plush acquisition, mm-hmm. it looks like. So that, that has um, delivered lots of cost savings, that looked like, to the business as he's merged them and they're getting the sales growth that they kind of expected and then some. So he does look like he might be a good capital allocator, at least domestically, and mm-hmm. he's done a good job there, it seems. But yeah, the UK one will be one to watch if they decide to expand or acquire someone.
1: Yeah, especially there. if it's an acquisition. They're, they're the ones I exactly. worry yeah.
2: Yeah. So stay, stay tuned. He wasn't making a formal announcement. He was just kind of teasing that he'd been in the UK right. and been looking around and that they're, they're interested in further expansion, basically. So. But
1: plus also too, at this stage, whatever the company, like the UK companies are now worth twice as much given the exchange rate. It's, yes. it's, I would argue it's not the time to be investing overseas. Yeah, good
2: point. Good yeah. point. Yeah, we'll, we'll stay tuned and see what happens yeah. there. But yeah, I think you make an excellent point. There's lots of lots of bad news or
1: war stories there over the years. Yeah. Well, look, I've probably derailed you from what you wanted to talk about. I, I did want to circle back. You've spoken about a little bit about being approached to talk about Qantas. What What have you been asked about for the Skew Metals Group? That's a, another QAV stock, and it's been topical lately.
2: Yeah, I mean, of all the obvious questions there at the moment people have probably read in the press just around board oversight and is is the board there a well-run and well governed board or is, is Twiggy kind of running things his way and hiring and firing people without good oversight and it's really difficult to know that isn't it if you're not in the board meetings or you're not internal in the company it's very difficult to know how those meetings or those conversations might be going you can only really base your assumptions on on the actions or the announcements that, that come out. So, so we haven't taken any kind of position on Borderski yet, the, the annual report and the AGM is still to come and we'll, we'll work our way through that. But there's certainly some concerning things. I, I would think as an investor, seeing lots of management turnover and lots of short 10 years of management, it does, it does raise some concerns. Cause when you think about it, a board's core job, one or one of their really core jobs is to appoint. And then to, to succession plan for CEOs. So if you're having a a significant amount of turnover in the C-suite, it is something's going wrong. Either you're not, you know, finding the right candidate in the first place, or you're not managing them well when they're there, or you're not all aligned. There could be myriads of things going on, but, but really a good board typically has a high-performing CEO on a very sensible, well-aligned remuneration plan and they deliver good results for mm-hmm. all the stakeholders along the way. And then at some point in time, the board plans a succession along with management, it tries to hopefully replace the CEO with someone as good or better in due course. Mm. I mean, that's that's the ideal scenario, isn't it? But it looks from afar that maybe that's not what's happening at the moment. It's all Risky. So... So we'll, we'll obviously go and meet with the company and we'll ask them these questions and we'll see if there's anything else we can figure out. And then we'll put that in our, in our voting intentions. We'll ask some of those questions at the AGM, but I doubt we'll be the only ones asking those questions. I'm sure there'll be lots of others that are yeah. um, supporting those points to Twiggy as well.
1: I think the question I'd be asking, apart from the cultural issues, and I'm, as you say, we're not present at board meetings, so we don't know exactly what's going on. Although it does seem to be around how aligned C-suite is to the vision for Fortiskewix. Um, my question would be, when is FFI going to be demerged? Because what the frig is a green energy company doing in an iron ore miner? And then the, the follow up question would be: is given that Twiggy Forest himself has come out and said he doesn't expect the returns from FFI to be as strong as the iron ore company, why is he investing in FFI and not iron ore? Yeah, that's right. I mean, they're they're excellent investing questions,
2: and I, I did see some announcements this week that I think previously they were, they were allocating about 10% of the iron ore's business profits to FFI. Mm. But I noticed, I think this week they, they announced that they're not going to be doing that as a default position going forward. They're now going to start to look at kind of an internal rate of return mm-hmm. for the FFI projects, but it's going to be a much lower internal rate of return than the iron ore <laughs> business. So as a shareholder, again, that's something you've got to think about, isn't mm. it? It's like if they're going to divert investment or profits to a a lower margin or a lower return business—is that going to come at the cost of the growth and future of the iron ore business? So I think as an now ASA wouldn't give you a an opinion on that because we're not trying to tell you to buy or sell individual shares necessarily. That's where you need QAV to to help you with that part of it. But obviously we'll ask them any appropriate questions around those kinds of things if they're relevant to to directors or remuneration, for example. So. Yeah, I, th- I think if anyone hasn't read those and you're holding Fortescue or looking at Fortescue, there was a couple of interesting announcements this week, I think, about the the future of how they're going to allocate the capital between those two divisions for what it's worth. And I think while we're talking, you know, Qantas and Fortescue, one of the things that ASA is very strong on is workload mm-hmm. for directors. And uh, uh, the directors in general, and particularly the chairs, able to fulfill, you know, all of their duties, Mm. if you like, to the company and stakeholders, shareholders, et cetera. And one of the key things we look at there is how many other positions they hold. Do they have so many other directorships? When something goes wrong, it might be difficult Mm. for them to, to really, or can they do all of the other kind of soft or... Um, non-financial type things that Mm. you might want a great director to do. So for example, if we look at Qantas, Richard Goiter is the chair there. He's also the chair of the AFL. Now, they're not listed, but they're a pretty big organisation. And he's also the chair of Woodside. So when you think about that, he's chairing three of the biggest organisations in Australia, really complex, really big, big businesses. Um, And chairing a small not-for-profit, I've got to say, it's, it takes a lot of time. It's a lot of time and effort and energy that you devote to it. Yeah. If you want to do a really good job of it. and I would question personally, and certainly ASA position, you should not be chairing three organizations of that size at the one time. Because when something happens like it is at Qantas now, that must be consuming all of the board's time. Yes. So what happens then at Woodside or the ASL if there's something going on in parallel? He's he's human, right? He's not going to be able to do all of those things to the best of his ability in the same time frame. COVID was another example. If you were running two or three or chairing two or three different organizations at the same time and COVID hits, you can only imagine how difficult that would have been for most businesses to try and navigate their way through. So it's not when things are going great that it's the problem or everything's humming along and the strategy's working well. It's when something goes pear-shaped or when uh, the box so-called black swan comes out of the out of the left field to to derail you, that's when we think it's a big issue. So we would typically vote against a director if they held more than five positions at the one time and the chair, in our opinion, counts for two. So we will seriously consider, next time Richard Gordon is up for election, whether we would support his re-election at one of those three, not the AFLMC, but the other two organisations, because we think he's probably overloaded. Yep. Now, most of the time, the directors say, Oh, we're not. You don't understand. It's really easy. Like, we've got heaps of time. We've still got time to walk the dog on the beach. You know, that, that's the kind of response you get from some of those directors. And I'm not saying that's what Richard Goit has sent to us, but I mean, some of the directors we push back on workload, they tell us that it's fine. It's, it's not a problem. But, so, so, do
1: you say we're paying you too much then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that could be the next
2: thing. You know. But, um, Yeah, we'll typically typically vote against a director's election or re-election if they've got more than five listed positions at the one time. Mm -hmm. Now, that that might be wrong. Maybe it should be three. Maybe it should be six. Who knows? But but we do think workload's an issue and that if you're spread too thin, you really can't do lots of uh, the softer things that a good director should do. So, for example, you can say, I've got enough time to attend all the board meetings. Well, that might be true. But do you have enough time to go into the organization and really see what's going on? Do you have time to go and talk to staff? Do you have time to go and talk to customers? Yep. There's a, it was a good example when Star Entertainment imploded a couple of years ago, Mm -hmm. where there were lots of things apparently happening in the high rollers room that that were not, were not legal and there's been regulatory action taken against them. And there were some very intelligent, well-credentialed directors on that board at the time. My suspicion is. Though, looking at them, most of them were pretty heavy workload. Most of them had multiple board positions. I think one of the ladies, Dr. Sally Pitkin, I think it was, she's also chairing super retail. She's one of the, the, the kind of key educators at the AOCD, which is kind of a, a lobby or, or a club for, for independent directors. And my suspicion is she probably hadn't been into the high rollers. Well, she probably hadn't been looking at what was going on inside Star on a daily basis. Allegedly. Um, Allegedly, even, even at a really low level, right? Mm. So um, I think that's the worry for ASA or for small shareholders around director workload. Do you really have the time to, to get under the hood and see what's going on in your organisation beyond just the board meetings? And that's where we'd say to them, well, you know, our risk assessment is different here. Our risk to the organisation we think is higher than yours if you don't think that five or more positions is too many. Just, and we can agree to disagree on that, obviously, yeah. but, but that's an official ASA position around how much choices no, you should take as a director.
1: I wholeheartedly agree with that because I think you're right. If, if, if things go swimmingly for a couple of years, the director forgets the fact that they'll be very busy when it, if things don't go swimmingly. Yeah. But I, I wanted to ask you, do you have a position on director workloads? I guess if, if the number of directorships is the horizontal approach, do you have one on vertical on how much workload is being demanded of a particular company? Because I have heard of examples where, you know, in some cases, management either through incompetence or by design loads the directors with lots and lots and lots of work. So pre-readings, minutiae going to the board, and it's a way of hiding things from the board if you, if you flood them with a thousand papers they have to read before the board meeting. So I'm thinking of, like, you think of Yes Minister, where they used to uh, give the minister three red boxes, and the thing that was important was at the bottom of the third red box I I have heard of management teams who play that same sort of game with with directors. So does the ASA have a policy on the size of board packs, the amount of pre-reading that's involved, the the kind of workload a director has just just being a natural member of that of that board.
2: Yeah, no, we we don't formally. I think the challenge obviously would be how do you find that information out in an independent, verifiable way. I mean, you can obviously ask them, but I'd be surprised if many directors said, oh, we're, we're overloaded. Right. Um, so I agree with you. I agree. It's probably an issue. Yeah. But I doubt you'd get much transparency or admission that that's an issue at that particular company. We do, we do ask for a really good skills matrix. So we say, we want you to, as a company, publish a good skills matrix that shows the different skills of each of the directors. Um, and how many directors you 've got with each of these right. skills and and companies are doing that to a different level at the moment, um, but it is becoming more and more the norm that you 'll get a good skills matrix in the annual report showing each of the directors and what what they 're good at or what their skills are. We also have increasingly been kind of asking. The directors to speak to their elections so when they're up for election at the AGM we'll ask them to get up and uh, share with shareholders at the meeting why they think they're a good fit and what value they think they're going to bring to the organization and that's when you get to see what kind of communicator they're like if they mm-hmm. haven't had noticed that questions coming
1: mm-hmm.
2: you get to see whether they can kind of think on their feet and speak on their feet and then also whether they're a confident enough person to maybe challenge the chair or yeah. challenge the CEO so it's only a very small sliver but sometimes you'll have situations where the chair will not allow them to speak
0: yeah. to their
2: election. Incredible. The chair will say, no, no, they, they don't need to speak to their election. We've looked at them and we think they're qualified. Well, that tells me hmm. that, that maybe that chair's got a very domineering style on that board and they're not necessarily having a really thorough engagement and discussion at, at board level. Hmm. So there's some little things like that that you can pick up at AGMs with the way that you ask questions and the way you give directors a chance to, to I guess, speak to to their, um, yeah. to their
1: elections. Do you have a policy on how many independent directors there should be on the board and, and how you, how would you define independence?
2: Yeah, we do. So, that look, that's a controversial issue because there's there's some school of thought, obviously, that you don't need to be independent. You can be like Buffett and Munger. Ooh. You know, independence doesn't matter. And my my personal view on that is I agree. If you've got a whole board made up of Buffett and Mungers, <laughs> you probably don't need independence. But it's not the reality in Australia,
1: right? We yeah. don't have a whole pool of Buffett and Mungers to... To chair or direct their company, and Buffett and Munger have Gates on their board as well. So, and, exactly, and, other, but, and know, others. Yeah,
2: they would say, you know, we're not independent. We don't need an independent. We don't need to be. I mean, and again, if, I, if I'm Buffett and Munger, I would agree, but. Yeah, I just don't think we have as many talented people as that to fill all 2,500 ASX companies. So what do you do in that situation? Well, What what we recommend, and it's also what part of the ASX listing principles are for companies, it's also what the AICD, so the directors mm-hmm. recommends as well, is that the majority of the board should be independent. So we're fine if you don't have all independent directors, but the majority of your board should be independent. Now, what does independence mean? It means that you're not a former CEO or really materially connected to the company. You can, you can know the people, you can have worked with them in the past in some other role or something, but you're not the last CEO or the last CFO or you're not best friends with, with the CEO and have been for 50 years. Like some obviously pump test type, type rules mm. like that. And also about tenure. So, so we have a, basically a position after about 12 years. So that's four terms, four three-year terms effectively we wouldn't consider you independent anymore because at the point we think you're so connected and part of the furniture that um, you're probably not thinking like an outside independent director at that point. Now, again, it doesn't mean we'd vote against you. It just means we wouldn't consider you an independent member of the board anymore at that point. Because there is a lot of value, obviously, having people that really understand the business, really understand the industry, maybe have lots of shares in the business. so we're, we're absolutely fine with people that have got lots of experience and lots of knowledge in the industry and lots of skin in the game, but we would want the majority of you want. So if you have seven directors, for example, we'd want four of them to be considered independent. You could certainly have three insiders or three that aren't, but and roughly somewhere between seven to nine people we think is about the right size for most, most listed board. That, that seems to allow you to get all of the skills that you, that you need if you're appointing people well, but not such a big group that it makes it hard to make decisions. Because I can, I can say at the ASA we've got an eight-person board at the moment, and we've, we've fluctuated between six and eight over the last few years. And it is easier to make decisions when you've got six people versus eight. The less right. people in the room, the quicker it gets to a decision, yeah. obviously. So we don't like to see the boards that have got 15 people there. We, yeah. we think that might be a little difficult. Equally, we don't like to see three people on the board because you're probably not covering all the skills that you, you, you might need there. So just some, again, these things are judgment calls. They're grey. People can have different opinions on them. But we do try and take, a, I guess, a middle or a balanced type position on those things and then apply
1: it versus not taking any position at all. How many boards would have a majority of independent directors on them? The, the vast majority of the ASX 200 do, and it's
2: because, as I said, it's, a, it's an ASX listing principle. So it's not it's not a, if you don't do it, you're going to be delisted. But Ooh. if they don't do it, they have to explain why not. Right. So there's an if not, why not clause, if you like. So right. if you have less than a majority of independent directors, you need to explain each year why you don't. Now, where that can get sticky, though, is sometimes the board will consider someone independent yep. that shareholders probably don't. Yep. And I see those examples quite often. There's, there's times where someone's been in management very recently or they're materially connected to, to the people at the company and the board will declare them as an independent director, for example. And we would challenge them on. And the ASX has some, some principles again around those things.
1: Well, they've been so, a long-term supplier and they're now on the board. So it's a, it's a reward for whatever they provided to the company and didn't charge for exactly. in the past.
2: Yeah, exactly. And if you think about why are these things important to you as a shareholder, I mean, really one of the core roles again of the board is to consider all of the stakeholders and especially the shareholders, the other shareholders Mm -hmm. outside of management. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't mean you don't think about management, but it doesn't mean you only prioritize management either. Particularly your independent directors should be thinking about your customers, your staff, and all of your other shareholders they are making decisions and helping oversee the company, not just what's good for our CEO this year. So that's why it's really important to you as a shareholder, we think, to have some independence on the board and to have some independent thinking um, and some, I guess, separation from the, the management or the insiders.
1: Speaking of independence, do you have a view on or a policy on diversity on boards, gender and other other types?
2: We do. We've been a big supporter of g- gender diversity for a long time. And ASA was one of the first groups to, uh, to push uh, for at least 30% female or male on, on a board. And then other groups came along, like the proxy advisors in the ASX as well. That's now their listing principle too. We have just moved that actually to 40, 40, 20. So that means 40% female, 40% male, and 20% can vary. And I think what's important to point out here is when people hear those targets, they think, to, oh, you're trying to give someone a leg up or oh, you're trying to help a minority group, or those kind of It's not about that at all. It's really about trying to have different knowledge and experience in the room to make a decision and to get to a better outcome. than if you have everybody who's got the same background and thinks the same way, and I have to say personally with the, the private company that I was part of, we, we obviously had a board and a board of five people and five of us that were... Basically exactly the same. Mm. We're all shoe guys. We're all a similar age. We're all white guys from Australia. Mm -hmm. And luckily it went well, but as I reflected on it later, I thought there were so many things that we didn't know or that we wouldn't have thought of or problems or opportunities that if they had have come along, we didn't have the the previous knowledge or experience to deal with, that we were lucky, I think, at times to scrape through. And I saw that when actually, I went and did the company director's course with the RSCD, And one of the things they do there is put you through a mock board scenario. Basically, they'll pair you up with four or five other people in the class from normally pretty different or diverse backgrounds, genders, experience, industries, et cetera. And they give you a problem. They say, here's your problem listed company. You're, you are the board that need to figure out how to deal with this problem. And uh, I thought, go, I've got all the answers. I know exactly what to do here. Um, and then you then meet as your board and start to talk through it. And I very quickly realized that I did not have all the answers. <laughs> I didn't have the best answer. Um, and in my group, we had the financial controller from QC. We had the general counsel from Virgin Airlines. We had uh, a top military officer from Canberra. And then we had a, a surgeon from one of the top hospital systems. And then myself as a, you know, retail shoe guy. And I quickly realized these other people's experience from very different industries got us to a much better outcome if I had have just gone it my way or done it with people that thought the same way as me. So I think it's really important to recognize that when you're hearing things about gender diversity on boards, I genuinely don't believe it's about trying to give someone a leg up. It's about trying to have enough Different knowledge, experience, oversight in that boardroom to get a, a better decision than I mean, if everybody thinks the same way. It's like the old cliche about if everything looks like a nail, I'm sorry, if you only seals a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? That's the problem. If you have everyone with the same background or the same kind of experience and something comes along, it yeah. isn't a nail.
1: Yeah. And the other dimension too is like like you, I probably would have approached that same situation with a tremendous amount of confidence because that's what white guys do who've had corporate experience. (laughs) That's right. Um, Overconfidence. Yeah. And if you put five of us on the board, we're going to have the same approach. But additionally, we're going to compete to see who is the hammer that hits the nail so we can beat our chest and say, we solved that problem. Whereas if we have the AICD board you spoke about, I'm not going to compete with the surgeon. Like, How can I compete with the surgeon on the Knowledge they have. So it becomes all of a sudden, it becomes a cooperative endeavor instead of a competitive endeavor. Exactly. Yeah, that's right.
2: And I, I think it doesn't mean that you shouldn't have a guy like you or
1: me on the board. It just means that you shouldn't only have guys Correct. like you or me on the board. Because Which is you redundant want that. anyway. You're paying five directors' fee for the same point of view. You might as well just pay one. Exactly. <laughs> and
2: I, I did think there was a great article in, in the Fin yesterday with, with an interview with Mike Henry, the CEO of BHP, where he actually talked about. Some of the really significant financial improvement and operational improvements they've seen at BHP since they've added more gender diversity to to their management teams and their boards. They've seen some some really interesting things in there like some reductions in injury rates and some improvements in financial accounting and management in different areas as they've added more female talent to some of their management teams. So I think that's the other nice thing. This doesn't have to come at the cost of performance, it seems to me. It's 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 almost the opposite. You can get improved financial performance if you've got a, a much more diverse. And mm-hmm. and it doesn't mean they shouldn't be qualified or experienced, obviously. We're not yeah. suggesting that. Mm. But having that broader and different range of experience definitely helps with decision making in my experience. So happy to say I say is a big supporter of that and yeah. push it with the companies.
1: Yeah, look, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Four Corners comes out at some stage in the near future. And- does an expose on mining camps and the sexual harassment that goes on there. Um, yeah. And has been overlooked because of male management for a long time. And it's just starting to come to light now with ad hoc stories, but I suspect there's a lot we're not hearing about. Yeah. Now, that's a great point. And that's exactly the kind of thing
2: you would think a more diverse management team, manager, Correct. or board might pick up and then might question and might start to push back on. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a, that's a great example, TK. And I mean, I, I hope that that doesn't come I mean, out because it's not happening, But yeah, I think it's no, you I agree. Know, probably naive to think that. So. Hopefully it's
1: fixed, fixed internally. And just on that too, does the ASA have a policy on, I'll call it the director's club. So in terms of, even though the directors are independent, they tend to have been referred by somebody who's already director. It's, it's obviously hard to get your first directorship, but after that you often get five. Quickly, so how do, how do you see new blood, I guess, coming in on fresh set of ice coming into the Australian scene?
2: Yeah, so there's, there's two, obviously two ways we handle that. One of them is we're declared again, so obviously we don't want people to take too many positions and we'll push back on it. The other one is we do look at each director's background and, and history, and there's times where there's, there are directors that have been involved in significant corporate failings that we would not support when they get put up for right. election at another company. And we would explain why. And if the company does choose to put them up, we'll then ask them to explain at the AGM why they think that's not a problem. Again, you get a varying degree of cooperation in answering that question. But that's one of the approaches we take, obviously. The skills matrix is the other obvious way. We really ask much more detailed skills matrix than most companies were doing. And we're getting that more and more so that, okay, you might be part of the director's club, but are you actually... Bringing the skills that the company needs and has identified that they need or not, and again, these things are hard to always guarantee. Yeah, but I'll give you I'll give you another example. There, there's a company up in Brisbane called Technology One ASX one hundred company. It's an enterprise software type business. Does a lot of stuff for councils and tertiary education, etc. Mm-hmm. Been a very successful business for a long time. Mm-hmm. Been very good for shareholders as well in terms of returns, but they've had uh, a non-independent board for most of that period, of founder, uh, which run the board very firmly in our, our observation. And I was monitoring them a couple of years ago and they didn't have gender diversity on their board either. So they had a bunch of insiders with lots of qualifications, lots of experience and lots of skills, no problems there, but the lack of independence. And um, this particular year, they had a, a new director position that they appointed and he was up for election and he was, he was a local guy that had come from one of your caring and they said the skills that he was plugging were audit skills. So that was basically what they were looking for, someone with, with audit skills. So I put the question to the chair and said, did the, given your lack of gender diversity on the board at the moment, and that you're not in sync with the ASX listing principles here, did you give any consideration to finding a female for this particular position? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah. We interviewed a couple of women, but this guy was the best. He was the only guy that really had the audit skills we were looking for. (laughs) I find that pretty hard to believe, that they couldn't find a a good female director in Australia with audit skills. Mm. But even if that was the case, he then went on to say, and by the way, it's not our job to change the world. So really what the chair was saying is I don't really value that, right? I don't really believe in gender diversity on my board or in management and we're not taking it seriously. Now, a year or two later. Unfortunately, he's been kind of pushed, I think, by the big proxy advisors to, to vacate the chair role. So he'll still stay, I'm sure, as a big founder and I'm sure an advisor to the company. The company still doing really well. But his views are a little outdated, I think, in terms of where many shareholders or stakeholders are these days around the way that this company should be governed and the way that, I guess, females in your company should be valued. So, so yeah, that's another kind of interesting example of when you go to an AGM and ask a question, you do get an answer sometimes from, from the right. chair or from the board that tells you what they're thinking or tells you kind of their philosophy around these things. And then you can make your decision whether you're happy with that or not.
1: Yeah, right. Do you have a position on fees? Director fees? Yeah. Yeah. So we, the, the best thing we can do there is we just
2: benchmark them to companies of a similar size. So if you're, if you're in the mining services industry, you're in this kind of market cap range, what's the benchmark of both management remuneration and also director fees for this particular company? And as long as they're not wildly above that kind of benchmark, we'll typically support them. I'm going to say I do find most companies are not particularly aggressive with their increases in director right. fees. They're much more aggressive with the increases in management remuneration. Yep. That's where often the remuneration is going up much faster mm-hmm. than the earnings or the cap of the company. The director fees part of it, it typically doesn't seem to – first of all, they need to get shareholder approval. The mm-hmm. director fee increases, which is interesting. They don't need to get shareholder approval for increasing a mm-hmm. – CEOs pay, they just have a non-binding vote on that, like we talked about earlier. But director fees, they do need shareholder approval. So maybe that's one of the reasons they don't go up as quickly sometimes as management remuneration. But yeah, as long as they're in that rough benchmark for the size of the company or the industry that they're in, yeah, we'll typically be supportive of them increasing over over time. Yeah, it's a different question about whether anyone's worth that much, I suppose, but we don't take a judgment, make a judgment call, or take a social position on that. It's just really benchmarking them against other companies of a similar right. size in the industry.
1: Yeah. Do you ever find examples of chairs who appoint people to their boards who've worked for them before or worked with them before? And, and do you have a position on that?
2: A- absolutely. And I think, again, it's, it's a judgment call there about whether this person's bringing value and skills that are going to be helpful to the company. Because I mean, if we think about, I guess, all of our own lives, we obviously people at times that we work with or that we know or whatever, that might be great additions to our company or our business. So we don't necessarily say you shouldn't do that. Obviously the independence might be a problem if connection is too close or too long or too material. But again, we typically assess that based on, is this director qualified and bringing good skills? To, to this particular company that they need or not, rather than do they know the chair well. So, yeah, that's probably the, the general position we'd take there.
1: Okay. You've answered all my questions. Now we can get on to the real important topic of racehorsing for the race, racehorses <laughs> and coming up in the spring carnival. And, Fantastic. Yes, and how good Negronis is going to be. Oh yeah, well
2: hopefully. I mean this is this is my first racing experience TK. So so far I've I've paid out a lot of money and I haven't seen my horse race. So that, that uh, is the racehorse that's, experience. That's my investment experience in <laughs> racehorses so far, but hopefully Negranis is going to be a superstar and and very well named by you 2 tk Negranis we thought was a great name. you, you talked about our other New horse double market, market the other yeah. day, so we've got some great QAV aligned names. So hopefully that's a good aim in, and our little horses are going to do very well over the next few years. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> hopefully it'll
2: be fun as well. I know you've been doing it for a long time, and you're you're much more experienced than I am. So yeah, hope, hopefully it we'll is if, fun if, if, if a well. heap of
1: fun. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate the intro. Yeah. Good. I think I think at this time we'll see.
2: All right, Ken. Well, really good to chat to you guys. I appreciate the opportunity. And yeah, hopefully that was helpful for people. And as I said, you can check out the website anytime if you want to to look at any of those voting intentions or reports on the companies or, you know,
0: reach out to us if you've got any questions and we'll always be happy to help if we can. Well, I didn't Uh, get an opportunity to ask Mike two questions that I had because- It's
2: very remissive as Ken. Fire away.
0: For the last 90 minutes, but like, let's be quick about it though, because I want to have some lunch. The first one was, <clears throat> Tony mentioned that he heard, I think you saw Marcus Padley on the TV the other day, and he was talking about his and that a lot of people have been capitulating out of the investing markets in recent times. I was wondering if you have any visibility of how are investors feeling? We've covered some um, different stories from the Fin over the last few months about investor sentiment. We saw a lot of new people obviously enter the market in 2020, 2021 during the bull run. Are you getting a feeling that people are sort of taking their bat and their ball and going home? I mean, the market is still down from where it was two years ago. It's been a been a very turbulent, tricky period. Got any sense on market, consumer, retail, investor attitudes, Steve? Yeah, look, it's a good
2: question. Where- I, I guess the first thing I'd say quickly is our memberships actually grown over the last 12 months quite significantly. So we're not seeing any kind of drop off of say, members per se. There's, there's been some more people joining, departing the investing world, if you like. So, so that's been good. We are going to actually do an investor sentiment survey of our own, of ASA members over the next few months. It was one thing that we, we asked the members about a little while ago, and they said, yes, we'd love to see an investor sentiment survey, like what other members are thinking and what they're investing in and what they're interested in. So, yeah. So once we've got that, I'll more than happily share that with you guys just for what the temperature is of the ASA membership. Most of our members are kind of retire or pre-retirees. So they're kind of at that towards, more towards the end of their investing journey than the start of it, I suppose. Yeah. So that might skew those results a little bit. I know they've got a lot of younger QAV members, obviously, which is great. But yeah, I, I suspect we'll get more kind of skewed to the, to retiree type mindset, and larger portfolio mindset from, from a lot of our members. But yeah, once we've got that same asset, but no, n- nothing other than
0: that anecdotally that we've seen or heard. Okay, thanks. And the other the other question was like an after hours question. I know you're a lover of great TV and film. What are you watching at the moment? What's your what's your number one show recommendation?
2: Um, my my oldest son and I have just started well, I'm rewatching and he's watching Mr. In Between. So oh. I've already seen it. Fantastic. Love it. And just yesterday he started watching it. He's a bit of a, a film and media guy. He's doing media at school. So he's been watching lots and lots of classic movies, and I've been tuning in and watching some of those with him. So we just finished The Godfather and Mm. watching all of the Stanley Kubrick films as well. So I've been catching up on a few of those classics with him, which has been good. It's good to have a 17-year-old that's interested in some good TV or movies rather than social media. So What did he think of The Godfather? He's he's loving all of them. Like I've got to say, he's got a really mature palette, if you like, that he's great. Films and actors, and even the Stanley Kubrick films. He, he even went and like bought some of them on DVD now to keep a copy of it for, for the right. future kind of thing, which yeah. with his bucket So
0: it, Yeah, he's really into into the classics. It's speaking of great, f- yeah. speaking of which, I had this realization last night. I went to I wanted to watch Citizen Kane, and I can't stream it. You know, I subscribed to four or five different streaming services, and I'm kicking myself now. I used to have hundreds of DVD, and then they were sitting on my bookshelves in my garage for 15 years. And Chrissy kept saying, get rid of these things. You haven't watched them 15 years. They're just taking up space. If you want to watch anything, you stream it. And finally, like over the last few years, I was like, yeah, yeah, fair enough. And I got rid of everything. Now I I can't watch Citizen Kane. I can't watch The Shield. You can't stream that anywhere. All of these things that I want to watch that I used to have on DVD Mm. I can't, they've locked them all up. You have to rent it or buy it. You can't stream any of these things anymore. That They did a bait and switch. Now I have to go out and buy the bloody DVD again if I want to see yeah, these things all downloaded, you know. The industry bait and switched right. my ass and I'm furious. Very disappointing. I, I
2: did just finish The Grade as well. I think, did you watch The great, TK? I can't remember we talked about that. About. It? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, know, so. it's, I think it's on Stan, isn't it, Cam? But uh, yeah. Yeah, very very funny. It's very loose. Fiction, kind of, I guess, mostly made up retelling of Catherine <laughs> the Great in Russia. Ah, oh, uh, right, yeah, gotcha. Okay, uh, is it Elle Fanning that yes. plays Catherine the Great? Ken? Yeah. yeah, she's fantastic. That's a great job. It's really, really funny. So, so yeah, I think it's yeah. been three
0: seasons. That's well worth a watch. If it's yeah. a comedy, I think. Very funny. Yeah. All right, uh, both of you heard the new Rolling Stones song, their first new song mm. in eighteen years. Angry? Not yet. No. Just Alex about.
1: and I, Alex and I watched it on YouTube last night, and it was just so. We just went. This is so sexist from the eighties. It was. Just, oh really? The film well, clip I, was horrid.
0: No, well, I think it's fantastic. I mean, yes, it's got the girl in the convertible mm. Mercedes doing the sexy eighties, lying on the bonnet and yeah. dance. Sure, yeah. but the other, I mean, the most, the coolest part of it is. She's driving down on a sunset boulevard mm. or something and there's all these billboards of the Stones mm. from all the different eras of their career mm-hmm. but the the they're coming alive on the billboards and mm. singing the new song but it's it's Mick and Keith and Ron going back from the 60s 70s 80s 90s 2000s in all of their different incarnations Performing and singing the song on these billboards. So they've used some, you know, AI, CGI yeah. tech or whatever to animate them okay. and make them look like they and were. That was, and like, that
1: was fantastic. right? Yeah. That part of it was brilliant. So why wasn't that just the film clip? <laughs> why, why, why put a girl on the Is the song any
0: good? Clip? Look, yeah, it's pretty good. Like it's a classic Stone song. I don't think it's, yeah. you know, it, it didn't blow me away, but it's a great yeah. Keith riff. You know, it's a great open D riff and it's, uh, you know, it's kind of funny. Mick's talking about his his girlfriend's angry with him. They haven't had sex for a week, a month. He haven't had sex for a month. He's 80 years old. He's complaining that he hasn't. (laughs) At one one point he says he's still taking the pills and (laughs) he's going to Brazil. Brazil. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I'll
2: have to check it out tonight.
0: Yeah, but Tony's trying to, you know, Tony's trying to uh, cancel it. Yeah, peace cancel, and culture. Cancel rock and roll. <laughs> He's trying to cancel sex, drugs, and rock and roll well, now. You it's the Rolling Sit down Stones, and watch it with
1: yeah. your 23-year-old daughter, and you have a different, <laughs> different perspective. <laughs> well, that's why yeah. I didn't. I never
0: had a daughter, Tony, so I never had to have <laughs> these conversations. Yeah. yeah. Fair enough. Chrissy, yeah. Chrissy came in. I was watching it last night in, in bed on my iPad. She goes, what are you watching? <laughs> yeah, there You You're busted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Looking yeah, forward for to the, the album, r-
1: though. Paul McCartney's on it, and Ringo Starr really? on it,
0: Stevie Wonder, oh. Oh, Lady Gaga. Oh, okay. yeah. wow, wow, yeah. See, Paul Big and cast. Ringo were on um, Dolly Parton's new country rock cover of "Let It Be," which is now on the top country charts. So, Paul and Ringo have now got a hit on the country music charts, which what? they've never had before. So, it's a first for them. Oh, right. But it's not a great cover. I mean, I love Dolly, yeah. but it's you know. Can't, hard to beat the original yeah. with that. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Chairman Mab. Thank you, TK. All right, guys, we'll let you go.
2: Thank you very much again for the chance to chat. Hope to, hopefully that was helpful.
0: Thank you, Steve. Thanks for that. Thanks guys. Talk to you later. Lovely. Enjoy your week off, TK. Thanks mate. The Goldie. If you like the QAV podcast, help us out and help your friends out. Help Australia out by telling somebody about it. You can shoot somebody an email with a link to our latest newsletter, say, hey, you should check this thing out. I think you'd really like it. Or write us a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. It only takes 30 seconds. You can find the links in our newsletter or our blog posts every week uh, and follow the instructions for how to do that. Or write a review or make a post on Facebook or Twitter or X, whatever it's called now, on threads, on, I don't know, whatever it is, whatever the social media channel of your preference is. Just help spread the word. You'll do us a favour and you'll help your friends and help Australia learn how to take control of their investing as well. The QAV Podcast is a production of Spacecraft Publishing Pty Limited. Authorised representative of AFSL 520442, AFS representative number 001292718. Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions.